This is the Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. Who's Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan doesn't ever think about Bob Dylan. I'm only Bob Dylan when I have to be Bob Dylan. Most of the time, I can just be myself. Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. Because there's so much mediocrity going on, you know? Anytime somebody really good comes along, it's like... You can't be too good. People that stand out in an individual kind of way, they don't fit into the system. The laws to abide And that the land that I live in Has got on its side Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the Bobcats, the podcast where I talk to Bob Dylan fans about their Bob Dylan fandom. I'm your host, Matt Steichen. Today, we have a guest that's very familiar to a lot of Dylan fans. He's been writing about music since before I was born. He's seen Bob live about 100 times. His Bob Dylan Examiner columns were read more than 3 million times over the years. His book, Friends and Other Strangers, Bob Dylan Examined, is available on Amazon and other book outlets online. Now you can find him on Twitter at Dylan Examiner and his podcast at Boston Herald Podcast. That's H-A-R-O-L-D dot blogspot.com. Harold Lapidus. Welcome, Harold. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I've read your work for a long time and you're constantly posting stuff to expecting rain. So I'm sure that's where a lot of people recognize your name from. Uh, We'll get to all that examiner stuff, but I think your Bob fandom goes back so far that I think the easiest way to start is just to go back to the beginning. Uh, You were born in Queens and grew up on Long Island. And of course, New York is one of the hotbeds of Dylan fandom. It's where Bob came to prominence. Uh, he has offices there. He's lived there various times. So growing up there, uh, when do you remember hearing him or hearing about him for the first time? One of the things about being aware of this stuff when you're very young is you don't know exactly how things got into your consciousness. One of the earliest memories I have though, is probably second or third grade, uh, the elementary school that I went to, uh, the music teacher was pretty hip. Her name was uh, Mrs. O'Brien. She played a, like Sergeant Pepper and stuff like that. But uh, we had this music book and it had, uh, I remember specifically, aside from the cover and all that, they had This Land is Your Land by Woody Guthrie, obviously. And the next song was Blown in the Wind by Bob Dylan. And um, in those days, any um, validation by the grownups was something because if like the Beatles were even in the news, it was about their haircuts or the screaming girls or the money. It wasn't really about how they're innovative musically. So uh, getting a, a, a thumbs up, a real book in school that had anything to do with anything resembling popular music uh, was uh, a rarity. And um, I realized, well, this is probably someone I should uh, find out more about eventually. I bet if you would have told Bob in 1961 that by the end of the decade, his music would be a folk standard in the same book as This Land is Your Land, that would have just uh, knocked him over with a feather, probably. Yeah, I mean, this is, I'm trying to think, it's it's probably the mid-60s, actually. It was pretty soon after. It must have been, yeah. And I know that you're uh, also a big Beatles fan, and so am I. And I think from the stories I've heard other people talking about, you know, how they got into Bob, it seems like through the Beatles is a very common one. So how long were you into the Beatles before you heard Bob? And then was there a kind of uh, acceptance of Bob based on the fact that he was kind of accepted artistically as somebody kind of on par with the Beatles? Or was there still a disconnect for you at first between those two? Well, well, you're right. There definitely was a connection and a disconnect at the same time. The um, concert for Bangladesh, I remember um, reading about it in the newspaper, and there was um, a picture of Bob Dylan with you know two Beatles in the background, you know, George and Ringo. And I thought, wow, Bob Dylan seems to be more important than two Beatles <laughs> or something. So it was another step towards that. Um, thing. I mean, you know, there's mutual admiration society 
and so on. But uh, I wasn't really that familiar with Bob's actual music. And he just seemed so weird. Basically, the Beatles, basically, I look at life as there's before the Beatles and there's the Beatles and there's after the Beatles. And the the Beatles had, they all looked alike and they had the dark hair and long dark hair and they all kind of looked alike. And Bob had frizzy hair going up and it wasn't the, it wasn't the same look. And he had, had a friend um, who were next door neighbors very early on when the guy really turned me on to Dylan. He, we, we used to be next door neighbors, like pre-kindergarten or something. He went east a couple of towns to Sayville. I went, our family went west to a town called Isol. And he, they had, they had uh, two more kids and uh, they had no pair from England. And when she left, she left behind a, a mono copy of Bring It All Back Home. And my friend Danny um, was obsessed with it. He turned me on to a lot of stuff like the Allman Brothers and Rod Stewart and all these bands before I really knew who they were. But I just looked at it and it's like, I look at the song titles, I look at the album cover, I'm going, this is just too weird. <laughs> what Danny did, uh, I don't remember him actually playing the music. I don't know if I was even that interested. But for my birthday in 1971, he got had his parents get me a copy of uh, Greatest Hits Volume 2. And when I remember when I opened it in the back, I saw Bob Dylan. I said, is this a concert for Bangladesh? Because it kept on getting... Uh, postponed and a couple seconds later it was obvious what it was and um i was excited it's my first bob dylan record my my sister bought lay lady lay she's actually the first person in the family to to buy a a bob dylan record so bob being something that was kind of weird when thinking about bringing it all back home and then maybe weird in a completely different way with lay lady lay greatest hits too is a really interesting grab bag of things it's got some early folk songs and then it's got those almost almost brand new in 1971 uh, recordings with the band you ain't going nowhere and stuff so did that change your perception of him as being something weird or or where were you at after you heard those songs yeah i remember putting it on and i i didn't get lay lady lay i just i just thought this is what happens when you get old <laughs> you know it's like he seems so mellow and, and this is the revolutionary guy that you know uh, that i just didn't get it but uh, i remember putting on you know side one and the first song's a swampy rocker and then there's an acoustic ballad which is uh don't think twice it's all right then there's lay lady lay and then there's the surrealism of um stuck inside a mobile and then it, it it was almost like a Beatles record. There was four different styles of music and four different voices. <laughs> right. And right. Um, uh, I don't think I, I I completely got him, but I was certainly it was it was the catalyst, you know, to, to get me further uh, into what he was doing. Um, I remember my favorite one was uh, Maggie's Farm because it rocked and it had three chords, and yeah, I can sort of follow what he was talking about. <laughs> so you told me uh, before we went on that. You uh, saw him for the first time in 1974 on the Before the Flood tour. So I wanted to ask you about your concert experiences, starting with that uh, first show in 1974. Um, Bob's always been such an ever-evolving artist, but you kind of have a firsthand account of being there in 74 and seeing him again in 75 and then again in 78. And it's hard to imagine any artist evolving as much as Bob uh, kind of twice, maybe from 61 to 66, and then from 74 to 78. Uh, it's such uh, an extremely different stage show and style of performer during that stretch. So tell me about uh, how you ended up at that first show in 74. Well, again, this is my same friend, Danny. Uh, when I when I uh, had a birthday uh, in the previous couple of years, I saw Grand Funk with Freddie King. Poker's his thing. And then the next year, so I was like in Palmer and he'd be my friend that you know, my father would drive us to Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. That would be my birthday present. And uh, so in, I remember seeing the ad for Bob Dylan and the band playing uh, Madison Square Garden in, uh, and Nassau Coliseum. It's a full page ad, uh, page two of the New York Times, an arts and leisure section, which um, I would always open first thing Sunday morning and see what was going on and what I was not missing, basically. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I'd really like to go, but I can't really rationalize it. I mean, I don't have, I mean, at this point, I had all I had was uh, Greatest Hits Volume 2, Bangladesh. Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid, and that Dylan album that came out, because those are the one, you know, the 1973 Outtakes album. And um, I thought, well, you know, I can't really say I'm, I 
I just wanted to go, but I didn't think I was worthy. How old and were then, you at this point? Uh, high school. I was about 15 or so. And, um, and Danny had a friend and his older sister um, won the lottery twice. It was literally a lottery for tickets. There wasn't, you couldn't buy them. Uh, you had at a, a ticket truck and people send in envelopes and uh, they sent you your tickets if you won the lottery. And I guess it's one of the things where millions of people throughout the country asked for a thousand, you know, tens of thousands of seats or whatever it was. <clears throat> anyway, so I guess she got two sets of four. So Danny and his friend Steve and, and I sat in the back of the Nassau Coliseum, same place I saw those other shows. And I did all my research without again, as people my age say, well, we didn't have the internet back then or Spotify or YouTube or anything. Right, right. And uh, <clears throat> but I'd, I'd read, it's like, well, he opens up with this song, an obscure song called uh, Most Likely You'll Go Your Way and I'll Go Mine from Blonde on Blonde. And I said to myself, trying already trying to be a bit of a know-it-all, just thinking, well, how can it be obscure if it's on Blonde on Blonde, which I didn't even own. <laughs> and uh, But I knew when he came on and he did, that's, I said, well, that's clearly the, the opening song. And the second song was uh, Lay, Lady, Lay, that song that I never particularly like. And it was completely rearranged and already I'm hooked. You know, I'm just like, this is the, the power of the band. It had this like restrained energy. And I just remember it being a lot louder and more, electric than the um even the bootlegs or the the album and uh you know song by song i, I just a lot of these songs i was hearing for the first time i'd recognize the title and uh, after you know six songs and the band came on rick danko starts singing stage fright again a song that um i saw the album cover but i never heard it and it's like and at the time there was that myth of dylan being almost like damage from the motorcycle accident and he had stage fright and he didn't do anything for eight years and he hardly did anything for eight years and all that. And the the mythic quality of everything was just uh, like almost overwhelming. And then, um, and then there, you know, I mean, I can go into far more detail, but then the second half, he came out with just an acoustic guitar and I was like electric guitar, bass, rock and roll. That was my favorite thing. And, you know, the piano could be okay whatever but I mean, with just him and a guitar and harmonica and that was a real acoustic guitar with a, it wasn't a you know plugged in one and he's playing these songs at a rapid speed and and it it, it just blew me away and i just like i couldn't believe it it's like uh, and if you know those max hell ads where the guy's watching uh listening to the stereo and his hair starts flying back and <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it was like that and um and my friend danny had a panasonic uh tape recorder which he brought in and I uh, couldn't wait to get my hands on it. And I made a, had another, it wasn't like a high tech thing. I put my tape recorder next to his tape recorder and recorded it. And I just listened to it to death and waited for, um, for the album to come out. Was it pretty, was it pretty true to the before the flood experience? As far as Bob's vocals, just being like, really like just in your face, like shouting the songs. Was that what you experienced there live? Yeah, everything was just intense. Everything about it was intense. Even just before it came on, it was intense. I just on the tape, uh, it, it just starts and they come on. And now it's not that big a deal. But in, in they came on stage, and there's a you can barely see anything. There's like a sofa and a lamp, and you know, no, you know, fancy, you know pyrotechnics or anything like that. And they're all wearing blazers, and they have a you know scraggly beard. Some of them and and uh and it was just everything was just really fast and loud and rocking and as soon as it came on on the tape uh, this uh steve kessler just said holy shit man dylan (laughs) (laughs) and it was just like it was it was like a mythical thing because i'd seen i mean i'd seen john lennon in 1972 and that was like yeah i said this this will never be surpassed and I don't know if you could, I mean, I don't like comparing things, but this is, this is John Lennon was confirming how awesome someone is. And this is finding out how awesome someone is. So then what was it like a year later? Uh, how did you end up with tickets for uh, the Rolling Thunder review? Uh, well, in the interim, I would buy, a, I bought a bunch of records, not a, yeah, I don't have that much money, but I had a dollar allowance and I would occasionally buy his records and other people's records as well. And um, 
I didn't really, I would say I didn't quite understand him still. I just knew he was really cool. And I just let the stuff flow over me. And it was just like, he's just interesting. And uh, then when, since I was on Long Island, I heard about the Rolling Thunder Review. I was listening to WNEWFM in New York, one of the first underground stations. And they'd report and say, you know, he's, you know, he's on tour and he's just announcing that the next day he's playing some small place somewhere and he's got Joe Baez and Roger McGuinn. It's like, oh my God, how am I going to go to this? Like, I can't, I can't even drive at night. <laughs> even if I could get a ticket, how would I get a ticket? And, and I, you know, while I'm doing my homework, the radio is always on and um, trying to find out. And I, I'd almost given up or whatever. I mean, I just figured this isn't going to happen. And then they actually had an ad in the newspaper again on the Sunday New York Times. It wasn't a full page ad. It was a small ad saying night of the hurricane was on, on my birthday at Madison Square Garden. And so I asked my parents, like, and the only place you get tickets was the box office at Madison Square Garden. And I asked my parents, you know, uh, can I skip school and take the train in? And they said, yes. So I got on the train and I showed up at uh, 945. They were supposed to be there, uh, go on sale at 10. And uh, the Long Island Railroad goes right to Penn Station. That's right where Madison Square Garden is. So as a, you know, I don't know, 15 year old or whatever old I was, or probably closer to 17 at this time. Um, I just went up there and there's no line. And I just walked up and I said, yeah, can I have uh, two tickets to the wrong tender view? And they said, yes. And I said, when did, <laughs> and it was like last row on the side. And I was very happy because it was inside the building. And then um, I said, when did tickets go on sale? And they said, they put them on sale like at one fifteen in the morning because the line was so long. And I don't know if that was true, but it would make sense because no one was there when I got there. And, yeah. So um, the word of mouth did did the word of mouth precede that tour enough to the point where you knew it wasn't going to be anything like 1974's tour? Because like the rest of the tour was in all these small venues, but then this particular show was in Madison Square Garden, and it was it was marketed as the night of the hurricane. So did you know all the backstory with it being uh, support of Hurricane Carter and all that, or was that not right. Uh, yeah. Hurricane, I believe the song Hurricane was on the radio already. Um, I know the album wasn't out yet. And um, yeah, I knew some of it. And it's funny looking back at it because there almost seems to, as often with Bob Dylan's anything, there seem there are people who love things and then there are people who just complain all the time. And because um, it sounded like, and, and I, I, I I don't remember the specifics, but it's like he's playing these small places and he's showing up in yeah. theaters and all this stuff. And then uh, then he, I remember he, I heard he played a couple of nights at like the Providence Civic Center, which is kind of big. And I said, oh, and the people said, oh, I thought he was going to play clubs. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> um, uh, I I didn't know what to think. I mean, I, I just thought, well, I just hope I get to see him. And then that's that's uh, what happened. Um, the, yeah, the, I think NEWFM was the only place I really got any information that in real time. So was the atmosphere of the show then as chaotic as those early tour footage shows or was Madison Square Garden a little more professional and less chaotic? I don't, I guess it was pretty, it seemed pretty professional to me. I hadn't been to that many concerts and I was used to like, if it was today, like, uh, like I also went to like Bob Fest and everything was all you know, choreographed and everything new, you know, everyone's on, on and off pretty quickly. I wouldn't say it was chaotic. It just seemed to be like one thing after another. We're just so far back. Um, we're just trying to, uh, I was just trying to absorb it all. And I did bring a tape recorder and I uh, recorded it and I, I, I was able to stay up to the song hurricane because um, nobody uh, wanted to go. <laughs> I couldn't get anyone else to go. My sister wanted to go. So I, I went with her, but we had to leave. Uh, at like the 1230 train, cause it's not to be a three thirty train. And, um, so the tape actually goes all the way until the doors close on, on the train. You hear me moping on the way yet. And, um, that tape actually made a uh, collector circles years ago. Um, but it was overwhelming in a way too. Cause it, it was like one thing after another, after another, a lot of people I never heard. I didn't really know who Bob Newworth was. I knew Nick Ronson played with Bowie and I know, you know, Roger McGuinn is obviously John Baez. But um, the everyone was there to see Dylan. I remember when um, um, Grandma Jack Elliott came out with a cowboy hat. I think a lot of people thought it was Dylan because no one could see anything. He kind of had a cowboy hat. They figured it was him. <clears throat> Clearly, he wasn't. And then next, then Bob Dylan 
Bob Dylan did come out and of course the place on nuts. And again, it, it was almost none of the same songs, none of the same arrangements. I mean, Robert Robertson shut up to play a guitar solo. Um, but what was, what you felt incredibly fortunate is I was previewing the stuff on desire and like, especially ice, the song ISIS and you can see him in front of the stage without a guitar and that, that song, all the songs are great, but that one was particularly great. And, um, and seeing him sing with John Baez, you knew that was a special thing. And he's doing songs that you never heard of, like uh, Dark as a Dungeon and um, uh, Never Let Me Go. And it was just it was just an education. And it's like, wow, I got to see John Baez and Muhammad Ali. And, you know, just just all these people in for, you know, whatever, $10 or whatever it was. And um, it just made me appreciate him even more. But again, not not in a deep way that I got into it later, but just as someone who was, you know, he's cooler than, you know, Alice Cooper, or whatever else I was listening to. I mean, this guy, and there was so much more to explore. Of course, there are all these albums and I was still hesitant towards buying some of them. I just, I didn't know what was on them. <laughs> so it, it took a while to, to complete my collection. So how uh, prepared were you for, what you saw then in 1978, because of course he took another very drastic right-hand turn in his approach to his live uh, performances in 1978. So did, were you as receptive uh, to the changes that he made from 75 to 78 then? Well, I, <laughs> uh, it's kind of funny because there was all this negative energy in the air about Bob Dylan at this time. Um, he had the hard, you know, he was on top of the world. He had three number one studio albums and he was just, you know, uh, um, there was a little bit of backlash writing a song about Joey Gallo and stuff like that. But then he had the hard rain special, which was poorly received. Then he had Ronaldo and Clara, which was poorly received. And he got divorced and uh, there's all this stuff going on. And he put out street legal, which also wasn't, uh, didn't get particularly good reviews either. And after, you know, albums like Desire and, and Blood on the Tracks, it it did not have that same appeal or commercial appeal. And uh, so we just, just heard all this negative. It's just negative. Everything was negative about him at this time, but I wanted to go. And I figured I was going to be the guy who got everyone tickets. So there's a place in Harvard Square where you just left a deposit when tickets came in, you get the tickets, hopefully. And when they actually went on sale, I didn't trust that. <laughs> so I bought eight more tickets <laughs> at the box office, which were on the floor and the other ones are up in the, in the balcony. And I got rid of all of them except one. And it was just, there was just, it was just so bizarre. I can't, it, again, now we were used to Bob Dylan doing all sorts of things, but it just seemed like it was the antithesis of everything Bob Dylan stood for. It's a very naive way of looking at it, but everyone was disappointed. Um, I was baffled by it. Um, I was also like, I got to all these people to the show and they didn't like it. And, um, and it, it was, it was, it's one of the things that I, you know, as much later, once I, got into it more and understood more. Uh, it made me want to defend things that seemed like a mob mentality about him in particular, and just the world in general, but with him, it's, uh, there's so many people, there's so many things that people just are prone to just criticize him at a hand and dismiss him in a way when he's one of the greatest artists of all time. And, uh, he deserves our respect and, whatever he does should be at least be uh, given a chance. And not everything is for everybody. And then he does so many different things and it's uh, years before some of it even makes sense. But at the time I felt, I didn't feel it was a bad show. I just thought, I just didn't understand it. I didn't understand. It reminded me of, of Neil Diamond, who was not cool. And actually it's probably more Elvis Presley who had died the previous year and even then, he was he, he, his image had not been rehabilitated. He was um, thought it was kind of a, a joke, really, about when he died. And so, seeing him in Las Vegas seemed like the exact opposite of the Rolling Thunder view and Newport, and it just seemed it just seemed so bizarre. 
and you know, the, the arrangement, I remember, I, I think it was, uh, uh, I shall be released. And the, the, the backing singers, you know, I shall be released. I mean, on the tape that we had of that, you heard people groaning. I mean, it was, it was like that. And looking back on it, uh, uh, one of the people like I got a ticket for was a uh, Seth Rogan boy, who you're probably aware of. We're from the same hometown. And, um, we look back on it as one of the best film gigs we ever saw, but we didn't get know that at the time. Yeah. It's hard uh, to be prepared for every, you know, big change that he makes. Uh, and looking back, you know, now that he's an ever evolving artist and you, you know, never to go in expecting a certain thing, but maybe back then you weren't quite as prepared for something that could be so different. Right. Cause it was different from 74 to 75. That was awesome. <laughs> you know, and then 75 to 78, it's like, I don't get it. And, um, it, it, it just seemed like, um, you know, Bob Dylan was part of the counterculture and he was the spokes, you know, I mean, yeah, spokesman for a generation I'm saying quotes for those listening on audio, um, th- that, uh, then it seemed like, you know, he sold out, which is he gets accused of periodically. And, it, and, it, and if he was going to sell out, it was a very bizarre way to sell out because <laughs> um, it wasn't even particular. It didn't really sound like a Las Vegas show. It just kind of looked like the one and had like, like the markings of it or the dressings of it. And on top of that, it was the Boston Garden, which had horrible acoustics. So put that all together. And um, uh, it's um, it was not... Uh, not a lot of happy campers when they left, but again, looking back on it, I, I think of it very fondly now. So when so you presented at the world of uh, Bob Dylan in Tulsa, your topic was Bob Dylan, street legal and the ghost of Elvis. And I did watch uh, your video of that presentation and it was really interesting stuff. Um, first of all, what was the experience like going to Tulsa and being around so many fans in kind of an academic environment. I feel like I might be a little intimidated and I'd be revealed as like a Bob Dylan fraud next to all those academic types. How was it for you? First of all, everyone was welcoming. Uh, There's only one guy who uh, from England who was still bitter about when he saw him in 1978 and wasn't But other than that, everyone was very friendly, very supportive. Uh, it's a great uh, camaraderie. Um, I had the same uh, trepidation before I went. It's like, geez, not just like are people just going to be so snobby or uh, who knows what. But uh, uh, when I heard about it, I had to decide, do I really want to spend this money to go talk about Bob Dylan in Tulsa <laughs> and uh, all that? And so I sent um, three possible uh, subjects to talk about. The first one was Dylan and the Beatles, and a lot of people were doing that. Then there was Dylan and the Grateful Dead, and you know, you know. But they chose the, my third choice, which I, I, I was I wasn't even sure what I was going to say, which was about uh, um, street legal, and uh, it, it's kind of like my. Um, penance for not liking it when it came out and uh it just, it just it's such a pivotal album and there and the one of the weird things is when i got there there were a lot of people who love that album too and i didn't realize there was such a cult following for it and uh it's an album that i never get sick of uh there uh, i can put it on today if i had time <laughs> and uh and still love it and there are uh, other albums that uh I've heard so many times I might not feel compelled to put it on, but that one, I don't know exactly what it is. I may have some theories about it, but um, the connection to um, Elvis Presley was one of the uh, things that made me realize what he, what might have been going through his mind. It's always dangerous to say, well, Bob was thinking this. It's like, yeah, a lot of people like to interpret what he does, but um, at least I made a pretty good case that, uh, there were um, certainly connections to Elvis, and um, uh, and just uh, one thing I, I also felt later that's, uh, is that it, re- it kind of reminded me of Highway 61 in the tense that it's a, it's got nine songs and it's just this really dense amount of information, and um, so I think uh, on some con- some conscious level I made that connection as well. Yeah, you talked uh, before we went on about. 
how it's more fun to dig than it is to maybe listen to Highway 61 from the millionth time. And I could totally relate to that feeling. And I think if you're looking at places to dig, Street Legal is one of those albums that's got so much to examine from the opening line of 16 years being a biographical thing and just all the turmoil he was going through in his life at that time and the magic and mysticism elements of the album. Uh, it just makes it really uh, interesting to kind of look at in a more analytical way. Is, is that why I guess you are one of the leading uh, Twitter warriors for a street legal bootleg series? Uh, well, I'm, I, I'm probably the lead, I am probably the leader on uh, Twitter. I don't. I, I'm sure it has zero effect on Sony and Dylan's management to to do a, a bootleg series on it. If they do, it will nothing to do with me. But yeah, it's uh, you brought up 16 years. He, his career had been going on for 16 years at that time. Uh, one of the things that I talked about in, in the in uh, Telset, which is on that video, um, which was <clears throat> I actually wrote this kind of thing outside the other term right before I went to speak. And uh, the song New Pony is is an alienating song. It's nothing you know, like the second song on Planet Waves is Going, Going, Gone. The second one on Blonde on Blonde the Tracks is Simple Twisted Fate. The second one on Desire is Isis. The second one on Street Legal is New Pony, which is, uh, you know, it's a vulgar blues song. And um, it, it comparing uh, a woman who you probably know who it is, but uh, um, he uh, euthanizes, and um, and it's it's just it's such a bizarre song, and uh, and uh, and you know once I realized I had to write this article or I, to, or I give this speech, I said, well, what am I going to say <laughs> about this song? And it just hit me that there was the an Elvis Presley song called Old Chef. And it was a, a similar thing. And whether Bob Dylan had anything to do with listening to that, who knows? But um, there were I made some comparisons, and um, and right before I went in, I realized I was thinking about how Old Shep and New Pony um, they both have the same amount of letters. <laughs> yeah, because I, I to me I always try to have fun with it. I mean, some people I um, I mean Bob Dylan's sense of humor is his secret weapon, and he, some of it's overt, and some of it's just when he rhymes orphanages with sons of bitches, it's just a funny way to make a, uh, a rhyme. Yeah, if, if, if it wasn't for the humor in his work, I don't know if I would have been attracted to it. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, street legal is not a funny album in, it, <laughs> in any way, but, um, uh, but throughout his career, there's just, just everything from putting people on, to challenging people, to just bizarre quotes, to doing commercials. I mean, it's almost like they'll just do anything. Um, you, you just like with like a, that second, the volume three of the Travel Wilburys album. He's having he's having a blast. He's just he's having fun, probably because it doesn't have to be Bob Dylan. And of course, he made fun of. Uh, people who call his profession or what he does subverting expectations. And he said, Oh, what does Bob Dylan do? Does he play guitar? No, he subverts expectations, but he really does do that. Uh, the other thing I think that uh, kind of gets overlooked on street legal is uh, the emphasis on the singability of the songs, maybe more than any album he has. And for me, I can look past pretty much any flaw in production if Bob is singing his ass off in the songs. And mm -hmm. the way that the arrangements are structured on Street Legal, it's almost as if they're set up and designed so that the singer has to sing weary or impressed or loneliness or maybe I might or time will not erase <laughs> uh, those those lines are built into the arrangements of the songs and uh, I just love it for that element of it uh, I believe Grell Marcus when he reviewed the album when it was new said Bob Dylan never sounded more fake if I, I, I believe um, <clears throat> and um, of course you know Grell Marcus is a great critic and <clears throat> but um I would I would strongly disagree with that. And maybe when he first, maybe if he heard it now, he'd think differently. Who knows? I think it's his most honest singing that he's ever done or up, up there. I mean, he just seems, he sings almost, he seems like he's wounded and emotionally 
she's wounded. And whether that's an act or not, we'll, yeah, we'll never know. But it, 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 one thing, if you're going to sit down and write a song and record it and have millions of people listen to the album, it's got to be in your mind that that's what you're doing in a way that you're performing. You're a performance artist in, in that way. But um, I don't think he could hide the pain that was going on in his life. And one thing uh, my friend Harry Cube uh, uh, pointed out in uh, Twitter not, not that long ago, uh, there was this quote that um, the, the recording, the, the recording, the final recording of uh, Street Legal was a very muddy mix, which I always thought was a, a plus in a way because I felt it was a very muddy time in his life. It's, you know, he's overwhelmed. But supposedly, uh, according to this quote that he had, um, that it was the, the recording started off very clear. And then he had everyone, I think, in a circle and purposely recorded in a muddy way. And then, of course, it was uh, uh, cleaned up by Don DeVito like 20 years later. Um, because it's like that, and it, it, this just came to mind with what you said, because there is that maybe when he was recording, almost like a cacophony of, of noise in a way, musical noise, he had to rise above it to sing in that way, which... Thank you for pointing that out because I <laughs> never thought of it in those terms. Um, yeah, because you wonder what what is it about that singing and it, uh, that um, connects. And I think it, it's just um, he is probably it's probably such a rushed job that he again you know who knows, but um, that he didn't even have time to think about what he's doing. He just did it. He didn't have he just recorded very quickly and then went on the road it sounds instinctive. Like he's hanging on to this mast of a ship and everything's crumbling all around him. And he's singing through this massive noise and chaos. That's what it sounds like to me anyway. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, it, he's, uh, he's trying to stay afloat in his life. I mean, think it's like sink or swim. That's it's, he's saying in other songs. Um, yeah, he is, he, he, he had, it's almost like, can he be an artist and be in a relationship with his, you know, in a, in a marriage at the same time? Can you go on the road and do all this stuff and be a family man? And that's uh, a challenge of uh, many artists. So we're sitting here doing some uh, pretty deep, big, deep diving into street legal. Uh, we're both journalism majors. Uh, I think that's something maybe that uh, people that have focus on words and attention to detail and language and maybe even culture to an extent kind of have a natural affinity toward Bob Dylan. When did uh, your writing background and your passion for Bob first kind of start to cross paths in your life then? While I was still uh, studying journalism in Boston and Northeastern, there was a local uh, music magazine that started up <clears throat> called Boston Rock. And that's when I started, I started writing uh, both for the class, if it, was, if it was appropriate to write about music, like record reviews, or write for Boston Rock. And it was a, it was a like punk new wave kind of thing. So there wasn't much chance to write about uh, Bob Dylan, although I did a couple of times. But that's uh, where it all started. And I, I, I both took it seriously and didn't take it seriously at the same time because I was just happy to be in print. I'd walk into where it was, they hand me $20, like thanks for the article. And then I just buy records with it. You know, it's just a, it was just a fun thing and getting free records and getting on guest lists. It was just, it was just a fun experience. And uh, my writing eventually I had my own column. And um, so I did that for about five years. And then I ended up working for a record store for 25 years or so. And of course, you know, I no longer do because records don't sell. But um, then in when I went on the internet at the end of 1998 and then just started exploring like expecting rain and stuff, I was trying to find a good um, place for Beatles information. And there I found a, this place called Abbey, Abbey Road, A-B-B-E-Y-R-D. And uh, I would just send articles. I, I just like sharing information all the time because one thing I didn't like before the internet, like there'd be dealing with people who were like traders and stuff. They were just keep things to themselves and they wouldn't be very, you know, generous with what they had. And which is of course now in the internet, everyone shares everything. 
Um, so I didn't want to be like that. If I found anything, I want to let people know. So, um, uh, and I would send him information. I would send as he's expecting rain information and anyone that I thought might be interesting, uh, interested in what I found. And I, yeah, I got nothing from it. I didn't really expect it to be rewarded in any way. I just wanted, it's like, Hey, there's this article on Bob Dylan from something. Let me just send it to expect right? the same thing I did for uh, my friend, Steve Marinucci at, at the Beatles site. Uh, after a while, he suggested uh, that I write a blog, the Steve Marinucci. And I said, what's a blog? <laughs> That's how long ago it was. He said, well, you just write about it and you don't get paid and you write about the Beatles. And it's like, okay. So I started doing that. And then um, he started writing for Examiner. And I was reading his articles. It was a very new uh, site. It was, they took the old uh, San Francisco Examiner um, uh, you know, name. And they said, well, we're looking for, you know, you know, Bob Marley examiners. And then one of them was Bob Dylan. So I sent uh, a little application. Next thing you know, there I was. I was writing, I was the Bob Dylan examiner. And what, as luck would have it, it was the end of August 19, I mean, 2009, 2009. And um, at the time, uh, Bob Dylan's theme time radio hour had uh, ended in the US, but it was still being played, it was still in the UK. They were on the BBC radio. And there was one episode where Dylan was introducing Ray Charles' uh, Lonely Avenue, if I remember correctly. And he said, you know, I'm going to be a GPS voice. And and when he was in the US, no one picked up on it. And most people figured it was a joke, but it was in something like the Telegraph or something, one of the English papers. Then the enemy, I think, picked it up. I said, wow, this is going to be my first story. I can't wait to write it. And then it was in the New York Times. It was in the Washington Post. And it's like, holy crap, as I'm, as I'm jumping through hoops to finally write something. And that was the first thing I wrote. And, um, and it was a big success. It was, it was a sentence expecting rain. I figured they would go with it and got a lot of, you know, tons of traffic. And, um, and that's how it started. And then it's like, well, now what? <laughs> So I started doing whatever I could think of. Well, it's September 3rd. It's the anniversary of 1965 and Bob Dylan played, you know, I'm not sure if it was Forest Hills or wherever it was. But, um, you know, I just, I just go look for anniversaries and birthdays and just write stuff. And, um, and then uh, I, at the time I was working at night. So I'd wake up, write something, then go to work and send it to expect me, right? Yeah, a lot of it's uh, pretty similar to your Tulsa presentation and that it's kind of like, well, here are some ways that Bob Dylan and Elvis are related. And here, here's an article about it. Um, I guess the good thing about Bob is for a guy that some people think is a recluse, he tours constantly. He writes books. There's bootlegs to write about. He welds iron gates. He's got theme time radio hour. He's, he's releasing paintings. So it's just a endless supply of uh, stories to write if that's what you're looking to do. Right. And then so one of the things um, that I would do when he was touring and the set lists were changing regularly is I would analyze the set list. And it was a lot of it's tongue in cheek because, again, who knows? But um, uh, I would when they, they were selling his Newport guitar, he dug out um, just like Tom Thumbs Blues. And I said, well, maybe that's why he did it. Or, oh, he did um, Maggie's Farm and Hattie Carroll and Hollis Brown and buying Billy McTell. And it's like, this seems like a biographical kind of set list or something uh, with all people's names. So, um, and I was just having fun with it because who the hell knows? I mean, it's just a fun thing to do. And most people got it. And I think uh, 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 that uh, makes my stuff hopefully you know, stand out a little bit and a little bit more appealing and you don't have to be a, you know, a snob or whatever. They'll like my stuff, hopefully. Uh, speaking of set lists, I always ask, the guest, if there's any songs in particular that they want to talk about. And you gave me a handful of songs, uh, but the one that I thought that was, was the most interesting on the list was Forgetful Heart. And I'm fascinated by that song and the transformation that it makes from Together Through Life into a highlight of some of the shows in 2014 in particular. Um, what uh, aspects of that song made, made it be one of the ones you wanted to talk about? Um, well, uh, I usually have this ritual, which uh, 
is that if, for instance, if, if Bob Dylan tickets went on sale today for a show in two months, I would not listen to any Bob Dylan. I would just want to hear everything fresh. If he has a new album, and this is before I would review them, I would listen to it just enough. So if I heard it, I would say, oh, that song is from the new album and I know what it's called. Um, I remember when uh, he was on tour with Tom Petty and was waiting for Knocked Out Loaded to come out. And I didn't wait for it CD, on CD. I just got on vinyl. I listened to it so I would know all the songs. And of course, he didn't do any of the songs from it. <laughs> but um, as usual, he can't predict what Bob's going to do. <clears throat> and uh, so when Together Through Life came out in 2009, this is right before I started writing, um, I listened to it a couple of times and I saw him in the summer somewhere. And I think he just did Jolene. And then, you know, I went on with my life and I saw him when I was, uh, it, it must have been the Wang Center in Boston. Same, it's the same as the music hall where he, the Rolling Thunder played, but it's, has a different name now. And he, it, this, the song Forgetful Heart didn't resonate with me really on the record. And when I heard it live, it was so powerful and that's one of the things that Bob Dylan thinks about himself as a performing artist. And that's when I connected with the song. And, um, and then uh, when we, we were uh, you know, communicating, I went back and listened to it. I listened to a live version of the, or the early version. And the, yeah, the, the, the difference of course is, is great. Uh, another thing is that I originally got on CD, then uh, like almost all those albums, I've gotten them on vinyl if I could. Uh, Cause uh just someone mentioned that if you listen to your other stuff on vinyl, it, you'll, you'll get things you didn't get before. And um, I'm not much of an audiophile. I mean, I listen to so many bootlegs and bad records and, you know, badly recorded records. I mean, I'd rather hear a badly recorded record than a really well-recorded boring record. So I, I never paid attention to it till like this century at all. And um, so uh, that's, that's the first thing that listening to it on vinyl again, after, having it on CD for a while um, helped, but yeah, I listened to it. And then I listened to a couple of live versions on online and uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's an old kind of um, um, technique to sort of make the heart, you know, forgetful heart. I mean, obviously your heart doesn't forget anything, you know, it's like your brain is what forgets, but it's a poetic uh, uh, thing to do. But it, it just has this uh, um, Edgar Allan Poe kind of feel to it. It's like you know, the, you know, if there ever was a door and, you know, never more, forever more, whatever. <clears throat> and uh, it just seems like if he, again, I don't know. I don't even know that much about uh, Edgar Allan Poe, just the, the basics. But uh, I, that's what I associate it with. And, and um, uh yeah, when I went back to hear it again in preparation for the interview, it's like, wow, it's not even how I remember it. I mean, um, what, what, what were uh, your thoughts about it? Yeah, well, you said uh, the power of the song. And to me, it just shows how much Bob really is a performer and not just a guy who writes great songs, but, oh, I'm not really interested in him other than I think he's a good writer. Like if you read, I lay awake and listen to the sound of pain or without you, it's just so hard to live like on paper. That doesn't, that's, that's not something that's going to win somebody a Nobel prize on its own. But then if you slow the tempo down and he smooths out his voice in, in that real sparse arrangement, it just becomes this like eerie aura and the way he sings it, all of a sudden it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And it, on the album, it's just to me a pretty forgettable song, but no, no pun intended. <laughs> and it's it just, uh, it takes on this life of its own live on the stage. And it's just uh, amazing the way he's able to do that. As I said, uh, it, it was, it was, it was the performance that made me think of the song when you asked me about listing some songs and uh, you know, I'm not the first person to say it, but it's his phrasing uh, is, just fascinating and he rarely does it exactly i mean usually he changes at least a little bit for a while he changes the um the way he, he phrases things every time he does it pretty much and uh there's, for a while he was doing this thing what they referred to as upswinging up, up singing remember that oh oh too well yes <laughs> and uh my theory on that uh was that i thought it was something and again 
God knows I could be way off, but I think he did it just so he could pay attention to his own songs. I think it's like, if I know I have to go up at the end of this line, I have to pay attention as opposed to sleepwalking through the socks. Uh, I just remember, I think it was the early nineties or something. I can't remember, but he's, or he would enter the show with Maggie's farm and it ain't me, babe. It just seems like, well, these are the easiest songs to do to, to, you know, I can do these and go home. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been a long time. We see, he's seen since he's phoned it any show, but, um, uh, I think he does, it just seems to me like a little trick to keep himself interested. Cause if you're singing, uh, you know, don't think twice. It's all right. Since 1963 for 30 years, you need something to keep your mind on it. So that was, again, you know, who knows, but that's my theory. Uh, you got around to, to seeing those never ending tour shows in the late eighties and early nineties before I kind of came on the fan scene. What are some of the other uh, kind of highlights of the shows that you got to go to over the years that kind of stand out to you in your uh, in your memory. I'd seen him with again. There was a seven day tour, which uh, it took a while to. It wasn't until the uh, uh, into the eighties that I realized that um, it was probably something that I could possibly understand now. I mean, I was I was I wasn't even twenty when when all that stuff was going on the seven day tour, and. Um, uh, you know, I didn't see him for a long time. I just, whenever, wherever I was, he wasn't vice versa. So when you, I saw, I saw him with Tom Petty a few times. I saw him with the Dylan and the dead. And then he, he was playing, uh, the shed great woods, which I know he liked he actually added another show. It's in Mansfield, Massachusetts. It's one of the first sheds. And he actually added another Tom Petty show. He liked it so much. He actually set it from the stage. I don't think GE Smith gets enough credit because I, it, uh, it, he played perfect accompaniment, perfect solos. It was, it was similar to like listening to uh, the similar setup as um, uh, the before the flood album, you know, six rockers and a few acoustic songs. And uh, it, it was, uh, you know, most of the songs were very fast, but there was a delicateness to some of it. The acoustic songs would be slower, uh, but he, I mean, some of the guitar solos on like on, on Tangle Up in Blue and, and Stuck Inside a Mobile, those two in particular, those solos were just perfect. And I was not, um, I got to interview G. Smith that long ago, but I didn't tell him that. When I thought, G. Smith is going to be really G. Smith, that guy who's on Science Live and Hall Notes, that's going to be his guitar player. And he was awesome. And it, it, everything was just streamlined. So I saw, I saw that show, you know, as I said, um, in a shed in 88. <clears throat> and, um, another one I remember was, uh, he played, um, indoors at a place called the opera house in Boston, a beautiful old theater. And, you know, it's similarly, it was, you know, a great show. And, but what really stood out is he did this song called the, the Wagoneers lad, which, um, I, I wasn't familiar with. I mean, I probably heard it in my life, but it didn't ring a bell at all. And, it was so haunting. And the idea that it's nothing to do with, he didn't write it. It's an old folk song. Um, and it even had the line, um, I work hard for my mint. I work hard for a living. My money's my own. And then that don't like it can leave me alone, which is probably where he got um, the Silvio line. Oh, actually, although I guess Robert Hunter wrote it sort of, but anyway, that, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, uh, it, but it was just this haunting thing. And then he, uh, you know, 10 years later, he, he did tons of these, well, I guess throughout the years, he did all these acoustic um, cover versions. And um, uh, it was, it was often the highlight of the show because he, it, one thing, um, we go off topic a little bit, but when, when he does cover versions, it's almost like it's really him. It's not like he's trying to be Bob Dylan. He is like, he just, envelops the song he just lets go in a way i think uh on some uh, in some cases i think that was the highlight of the tom petty tours when he um he got to do uh, other people's songs yeah i think it's almost like he respects those songs so much that he doesn't want to up sing them or slack off on them when when he sings roving blade or lady came from baltimore or little moses those are the songs like Speaking of, you know, him being more than just a writer, his interpretations of those songs just shows what a great performer he is. Yeah, because 
in, you believe him. Even, you know, he didn't do any of these things that he's singing about. It was, you know, hundreds of years ago in some cases, but it's believable. Whatever he sings about for the most part is, is, you know, he says he's a union man and <laughs> or whatever it is. He just, it just in the context of what he does with his phrasing and, and his history and everything they singing about uh, it's, that's one of the things that um, makes him special. And one of the things that is, um, kind of ironic is that, you know, some people can interpret Dylan really well. And then there are there's some just like bland kind of tributes to Bob Dylan, you know, various artists albums. And there's, they don't, they don't feel it the way Bob Dylan feels his own songs or other people's songs. So as someone who uh, we were talking about the never ending tour and you got to see Bob before that, and you got to see lots of shows over the last 30 years. Uh, what do you think that this second act of his career has meant to his legacy? Uh, he, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that he was able to escape his sixties shadow. Um, it, it'll never be gone totally. Um, but that was, again, the street legal may have been the, that whole tour may have been the first step at, at trying to, say goodbye to all that uh he was able to reinvent himself and he was doing what he was doing and basically there were times it seemed like it was ebbing and flowing Uh, i want to be a i want to be popular i don't care i'm just doing what i'm doing for my own sanity Uh, i remember i worked i worked for a record store and for 25 years and i remember when uh time out of mind came out uh, the label reps knew I was a Dylan fan and they said, uh, this is the first time in ages Dylan's management was, was checking on sales <laughs> and they wanted to do extra promotion and, you know, you know, discount 10% to the record stores so that, um, they could put it on sale, that type of thing. So it's not like he doesn't care about his like I say, of course he does, but, um, he, uh, he does what he has to do. And he figures either you get it or you don't, or maybe you'll get it in a hundred years. And, um, but, uh, as I said, the, the, the never ending tour was able, he was able to, um, continue to, uh, evolve. And then there are you know, younger people, uh, who go and they don't, they might be aware of his legacy. Well, of course they're aware of his legacy, but they don't really know, um, they don't hold it in such uh, high esteem because they didn't live through it in that way. Um, and as um, your previous interviewer, uh, interviewee, um, uh, Carolyn Schwartz mentioned something like that, but uh, she thought that it was, um, she, her guess was that she'd like the, he liked the idea that there was these young people who are really into what he was doing. I mean, I, I probably got sick of looking at the same old faces, you know, um, in the front row all the time. Um, he was able to shed those people and they, they were a burden to him. I, I would guess for him to continue to do things if people want him to redo the same thing over and over again. And now no one ever expects that really from him anymore. And that, I guess that was, I guess the, the longer answer to the, <laughs> to what you were asking. I think, think he, I think he even dedicated some time to that in Chronicles talking about what he was going to do to rebuild his new audience um, with the start of the never ending tour. And what's interesting, I think now is that now that he's been doing it for so long, his legacy actually ends up more like he wanted it to be in the beginning, which is that he's now the aging troubadour who's been, uh, you know, out on the road for so long. Uh, like you said, the people seeing him now, they know who he was, but now there's been people like you writing about him all this time. And to them, he's uh, not the voice of the gen- of the generation. He's, he's been able to outlast that legacy. It's, and it's really interesting to be able to go see someone who basically had legend status at the age of 25 and now he's 80 and he's still doing the same thing that made him a legend. It's like if Charles Lindbergh, had become like a commercial airline pilot and you were like going on your flight, you know, on Delta and you're like, uh, today's captain, today's, today's, uh, <laughs> pilot is Charles Lindbergh. Like what? <laughs> Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> yeah. I might get another flight if he was flying, but <laughs> 
Um, so uh, the last question, Harold, I wanted to to ask you today. Um, your fandoms ultimately provided you with a creative outlet of your own as a writer, and it's done the same thing for me, sort of as a journalist. Um, is the process of writing itself what makes it gratifying for you, or is it more about being able to share your appreciation and passion for his work with so many people? What is it that uh, drives you to chronicle Bob's career for this long? I had not written for many years, other than very small things. I said I wrote for five years for the uh, a local uh, Boston magazine. Then I worked for record store, so I didn't uh, write anything for anybody. And uh, it was my uh, partner, Debbie, who encouraged me to say, you can still do this. I mean, I, it was certainly in my head, but it wasn't on any, you know, uh, wasn't it for anyone um, to share other than people who I might talk to about it. And she's the one who uh, would sort of fine tune it because she's the one who made it a accessible to people who may not be fanatics fanatics. And she's the one who, uh, she's, she's a great editor and all these other things. So, uh, so when I first wrote that article that I told you about, about the GPS, it was more like, wow, I did that. And people responded. And, and then, so writing about it, it's, it's a multifaceted thing. There's, the first of all, I have to please myself or whatever I'm doing. That's, that's Ricky Nelson saying, <laughs> gotta please yourself. And um, so I want it to be good. And sometimes, uh, yeah, I might sacrifice even like a, a, a headline. The headlines are what gets you. If the headline isn't any good, then people might not be interested in it. Um, and I might just for my own satisfaction, I, I might want to call it something different just because it's what I want to do. Um, I want to, uh, so initially I think I just wanted it to be good. Uh, and then people came, like I built it and, they, <laughs> and then they came. So, uh, it, it, I think it, it all feeds off each other really. Um, and then people like, uh, you know, John Fugel saying, I'm not sure if you know who he is, but, um, uh, he interviewed He's a big Dylan fan. He interviewed, uh, you know, George and, and Paul from the Beatles um, and Michael Gray and all these people. And I would try to get a hold of some of them. And uh, and it would all build on each other. And Scott Warmoth and um, who uh, and just, you know, Scott Warmoth and Seth Rogovai and I all come from the same place. <laughs> so there must be something in the water. Um, but I get uh, the, um, as I said, it would have to be good. I, I couldn't possibly do this and just for any other purpose other than trying to do something that hopefully um, would be a reference. That was the initial thing. It's kind of like, you know, uh, Michael Gregg wrote um, Bob Dylan Encyclopedia, but that was a book. I, it was almost like, I want, like, I want, if I wanted to Google, you know, Bob Dylan and Rick Nelson, I would be there with my own article about, uh, about that. And I wanted to be, uh, and I said, as you, as you, uh, are, uh, to have a degree in, uh, journalism, to have a journalistic background, to actually fact check, uh, do things that, um, uh, uh some other people that I see online don't quite do. Um, I, and also Dylan fans are the worst. I mean, as far as, you know, holding your feet to the fire, you know, one little semicolons off and forget it <laughs> and they'll let you know that it's, it's wrong. So I had to really, uh, step up pretty quickly and, and, re- and do a high quality thing. But, uh, by doing that and just writing stuff for myself, other people connected to it, other people connecting to it, maybe wanted to do it, maybe wanted to do it more, maybe want me to, uh, explore uh maybe different avenues with my writing and uh and it was um a rewarding experience every every which way and and even and even uh people who didn't like my writing uh maybe want to be even better at it She is a poor girl, her fortune is sad. 
She's always been accorded by the way it is played. You have been listening to The Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. You can find back episodes of the show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please feel free to rate, review, and share a link to this podcast with your Bob-loving friends around the world. For the latest Bob Dylan news and commentary, follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Stike. Once again, thanks for listening, and be sure to join us next time for another episode of The Bobcats. to your songs that you want to say to people? Good luck. Good nerve. You don't say that in your songs. Oh, yes, I do. Every song tails off with good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you make it. <laughs>